It's Friday, September 22nd, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLOT. I'm Patrick Shea. This week on the show, an update from reporter Lindsay Moore on day seven of the United Auto Workers strike. Then we'll hear from reporter Ryan Stanton about the rising costs of housing in Ann Arbor, which has become one of the most expensive cities in the country. After that, political reporter Simon Schuster tells us about division and infighting within the Michigan Republican Party, and Justin Engel talks about declining enrollment at Central Michigan University. All that and more coming up on Michigan News from MLive. It's now been one week since the United Auto Workers Union went on strike. UAW President Sean Fain continues to criticize the stagnant wages of most employees at Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and Stellantis. The strikers are calling for cost-of-living allowances, among other things, and have set a new strike deadline of today, Friday at noon. Now keep in mind, this podcast episode was published at 6 a.m. on Friday, September 22nd. This is a developing story, and a lot may have changed by the time you're hearing this. But a great way to get the latest on the strike is by reading Lindsay Moore's work. She covers economics for MLive and is here with an update. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me back. So most, if not all, Michiganders have heard about the strike by now. They know auto workers are on the picket line, but that might be the extent of what some people know about this. Lindsay, break down the gist of what the workers are pushing for here. What outcome are they after? For sure. So even though it is definitely a changing landscape right now in auto, a lot of these negotiation standpoints are, you know, kind of your usual stuff, the the wages, benefits, hours. Um, Some big things, though, that add nuance here is that a lot of uh, workers are looking to get back the concessions that they made during the 08 recession. And and that's really where a lot of the emotional tension is, too, that that cost of living piece, the way that pensions look, things that auto workers uh, kind of made a handshake agreement that that would come back when when companies became profitable again. Now, the UAW has gone on strike many times in the past, but not quite like this. What's different with this particular strike? Yeah, so this is a historic strike because all three Detroit automakers are the target. So typically negotiations uh, start with one target where they will sit down, negotiate a contract, and then they do what they call a pattern agreement. So they hope to bring it to the other two automakers and try to get something similar. This year, President Sean Fain has flipped that on its head, and he's essentially kind of pitting the companies against each other. He's simultaneously negotiating with all three and trying to get the best offer. Um, It has kept things very competitive, and everybody on their toes, me included. And broadly speaking, Lindsay, what kind of economic impact does a strike like this have for the auto manufacturing companies and for the market as a whole? Yeah, I mean, a strike, of course, means that we're going to limit supply. And so on the consumer end, people are concerned about that. But that's a little bit longer term. In the short term, being here in Michigan, um, what we are really looking at is suppliers on both sides of the state. So we've already seen some layoffs in Shiawassee County. Uh, West Michigan suppliers are getting nervous. I mean, if if the big three are your main uh, customers, then you probably are not ready to completely halt what you're doing because they no longer need the parts that you supply them for. And so that has major ripple effects that we're already seeing. And of course, going on strike can come at a cost. Some of these workers are really putting their jobs on the line here. Have the big three automakers been laying off some of these employees? 
So that's a bit of a tension point as well, is that, you know, worker got, workers got really riled up to strike, but because this is happening in phases, there's a lot more workers who are not striking right now. But because of these kind of economic dominoes here, they are being laid off. So, for example, one of the striking plants is in Wayne. It's the Ford Michigan Assembly, where they make the Bronco, one of the more profitable cars. And uh, because that plant went on strike in the final assembly in the paint department, that meant that everybody in stamping no longer had work to do. And we've seen that happen um, in Ohio and Missouri as well. And so those companies from GM and Stellantis have resulted in thousands of layoffs. So that happened very quickly um, and for all intents and purposes was kind of the point of the strategic strike. Hmm. And finally, Lindsay, what's the latest? Again, like I mentioned up top, things could have changed by the time someone listens to this. But as of right now, there's a deadline of Friday at noon. What happens then? Yeah. (laughs) Friday at noon, we find out if the strike continues, if it expands more specifically. So this strike, like I said, it targets all three automakers, but it doesn't mean that everybody's walking out at once. So Sean Fain has put everybody on notice that at 10 a.m. today on Friday, um, folks will find out if they are kind of next in line to to join the picket. And if that's the case, and that means another batch from GM, Ford, and Stellantis will be on strike, we don't know what the targets will be until it's announced, but we are expecting somewhat of a pattern. So for example, last week, all assembly plants went on strike, or at least that was the category of the three. So this week, we'll be looking to see, you know, will it be engine plants? Will it be transmission? Um, We'll see if there's some similarity there. But uh, the strategy, like I said, is meant to keep us all on our toes. And that's certainly working. (laughs) Reporter Lindsay Moore has been very busy over the past week. You can read all of her coverage of the United Auto Workers strike at MLive.com. Lindsay, thanks for staying on top of this story. Thank you. Auto workers, of course, aren't the only Michiganders concerned with the rising cost of living. This week, MLive has been publishing a series of stories exploring how the high cost of living is changing the city of Ann Arbor and surrounding areas. One of those stories looks at a pretty drastic change in the local housing market. Ryan Stanton wrote that story and joins us now. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So your story is titled Hippies to High Rises. Let's start with the hippies. Take us back to Ann Arbor in 1968. Yeah, in 1968, there was a commune uh, from Detroit called Translove Energies. It was led by uh, John Sinclair, who I think a lot of people in Michigan know from his uh, days as a marijuana martyr of sorts. And uh, yeah, a bunch of hippies all moved to Ann Arbor, 30 of them at once, packed into these houses on Hill Street and uh, started to try to make Ann Arbor a little more radical and more funky. And uh, they're pushing things like rent control and decriminalizing marijuana. And it was uh, it was the heyday of the hippies in Ann Arbor. Now, if we fast forward to today, Ann Arbor has become one of the pricier cities in the nation, you've reported. But even just on a state level, how does the cost of housing, the cost of rent in Ann Arbor compare to other Michigan cities? Yeah. So, I mean, if we're hundreds and hundreds of dollars ahead of other cities, you know, including Grand Rapids, Lansing, Detroit, I mean, Ann Arbor's average rent is up to close to $2,000 now. So we're, uh, you know, that's $300 above the national average. And yeah, we're one of the pricier cities in America now. And when did this happen? Has this been a sort of steady, gradual increase in the cost of housing or was it a more recent spike? seems to have escalated in the last decade or so. Uh, and, you know, since uh, the Great Recession, uh, we've just seen housing prices just soar upward, um, you know, but it was the history behind it is just a decades long building of demand from U of M, 
the University of Michigan continuing to grow and grow in student enrollment and jobs. You know, they have more than 50,000 employees in Ann Arbor now and more than 50,000 students. And uh, housing has not kept pace with that. So there is a lot more demand to live in Ann Arbor than there is housing supply. And that's that's half the problem. So one person you spoke with for this story was a professor, I believe, who teaches urban planning at the University of Michigan and recently retired as a city planner. That seems like the perfect voice to speak to a housing crisis in Ann Arbor. What did they have to say from an urban planning perspective? Yeah, that was Jeff Cahan. He's a retired city planner. I think, as you mentioned, uh, he now teaches urban planning at U of M. He uh, agrees that, uh, you know, it's a supply and demand issue on one hand. And also, on the other hand, there's this issue of housing not being built for the missing middle. You know, most new development caters to a high-end clientele. You know, it's, a, it's luxury branded with prices to match. And the city on the public housing side is trying to house the very low incomes that leaves people in the middle uh, struggling to afford Ann Arbor. And those are people like nurses and teachers and firefighters and so on. And are there any ways that the city is trying to address this issue of affordability, maybe specifically for this missing middle that you're talking about? Yeah, they're trying to uh, approach it in a few ways, uh, you know, continuing to allow more density as one, although the city's been trying that for a couple decades now and not really gaining ground. Uh, So they're now also talking about rent control, which would require a change in state law to allow that. And uh, it may take a lot more public subsidy, too. The city has an affordable housing millage that was passed a few years ago uh, that is going to fund about 1,500 new affordable housing units in the coming years. Uh, But city leaders acknowledge uh, they have acknowledged for the past decade that we need thousands. And uh, we've barely added a couple hundred Ryan Stanton is an MLive reporter based in Ann Arbor. His story is part of a week-long series on the cost of living in the Ann Arbor area. Ryan, thanks for your time. Thank you. When Christina Caramo was elected chair of the Michigan GOP earlier this year, she pledged to unify the party. But efforts to do so may have backfired. Simon Schuster is a senior political reporter with MLive and is here to tell us more. Hi, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me on, Patrick. So you've reported on a peace summit that was proposed for late August in Kalamazoo. First off, why did Michigan Republicans feel that was needed? Throughout the tenure of uh, Christina Caramo's leadership, there's still continued to be significant infighting within the party. And Kalamazoo County, where this peace summit was proposed, was just one of those. And uh, the general counsel for the party, Dan Hartman, had proposed this, but the sort of structure of it uh, some of the ones half the the faction who had already won in court in this Kalamazoo infighting uh, strongly objected to it because it would have essentially placed all of the power in, among state party leaders and uh, essentially arresting the adjudication of this issue with Christina Caramo. And now county parties are separate from state parties, and so they were they took a lot of offense to this, and it essentially uh, it created even more conflict in their uh, attempts to sort of disperse some of this uh, acrimony. Yeah, so it sounds, as you've said, like the response to this proposed peace summit was not what the party would have hoped. How did it come across on a local level? Yeah, so the local leaders were uh, the, the people who had won in court, the current party chair who had ousted a, a faction of delegates who had later sued them. They basically completely disregarded it, said that, you know, this has no legitimacy. And then afterwards, because this immediately went around the state, this proposed peace summit, and then its results other counties took offense too. They saw this as an intrusion of the state party in uh, their affairs, and they wanted no part of it. And Simon, as you reported, one county chair called the current state of the party a, quote, doggone mess. 
and was very critical specifically of the party chair, Christina Caramo. Has she had anything to say about this recent infighting? So I first talked with Christina Caramo back at the end of March, and she'd only been chair for about a month then. She's not someone who has a lot of political experience. She's very much a regular person. And she had made a lot of ambitious promises to the party. This is sort of uh, this story was sort of a check back in six months later, and I found that a lot of the promises that she had made had not come to pass. And uh, there was not a lot of communication from the top. And Mark Fortin, in, in this example, the executive, uh, the, the chair of the Macomb County Republican Party, had gone from being a staunch Cromwell ally to really disillusioned with her leadership. And so as we're coming up to the Mackinac Republican Leadership Conference this weekend, there's a lot at stake for uh, Christina Cromwell to see if she can sort of right the ship and bring people back to her side. I know this is a ways out, but what kind of bearing do you feel like this sort of division might have as, as we're approaching 2024, as we're looking at elections in Michigan, and how much priority will there continue to be on trying to find some sort of unity within the Michigan GOP? But when you look at the strengths that Michigan Democrats have, for better or worse, they have a tightly controlled ship and that they try to unify and create a singular campaign and, and sort of centralize their organizing efforts so that they can go and hit their electoral heart, uh, targets where they need to most uh, aggressively and try to really pick up seats where they can. Um, Right now, Republicans across the state are not feeling like the state party is going to be able to play any sort of central coordinating role and that they're not going to have the financial resources or the ideological unity that are needed to sort of bring the fight to Democrats. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months to see if they can sort of get back on the right track. You can learn much, much more about division in the Michigan Republican Party by reading Simon Schuster's story on MLive.com. It's called Michigan's GOP is a, quote, doggone mess. Inside a Party Torn by Infighting and Paranoia is the title of that story. Simon, thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Declines in enrollment are an issue for many colleges and universities across the state. But in Mount Pleasant, Central Michigan University has seen a drop in students for an eighth consecutive year. Justin Engel covered this story at MLive.com and is here to break down this trend for us. Hi, Justin. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Doing good. So... How significant of a drop in students are we talking about here? Is this unprecedented for CMU? Uh, well, it's a smaller drop than they've had more recently. So they, their enrollment decreased uh, between this fall and last fall by 1%, which was, when you add it up, it's 152 students. Um, so not hugely significant compared to the previous years. Um, the, 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 the year before that, so for between 2021 and 2022, they lost uh, 871 students. And then the year before that, they lost 1,879 students. So uh, they've been on a decline. Um, it's been a lot steeper than it has been over the past year, but they're still uh, yeah, losing students. And that's not something they want to be doing or any, any uh, public university wants to be doing. Right. And you reported in your story that if you compare where the enrollment is at now, you have to go a ways back in time before you reach the same numbers at CMU. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually had to do um, some deep diving here. CMU does a really good job of making their enrollment numbers public uh, going back to 1980, which seems pretty reasonable. That's uh, you know quite a ways back. Um, but, but the numbers that they reached this year actually weren't in that. They didn't fall into any of the enrollment numbers that they had since 1980. So I had to actually go into... Uh, uh, and, and also, fortunately, they keep some good archives of their their newsletters that they they um, you know put out to the to the campus community there. So I had to go online and and really dig in each year and had to know kind of exactly when enrollment numbers would come out at September. So 
I went back year by year, and I finally got to 1973, and I saw, all right, so they've, this is the year where they were actually smaller than um, the, 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 you know, their enrollment number this year. So, yeah, it's been uh, 50 years, a half a century exactly. And it goes without saying that students and their tuition dollars are a pretty vital part of making a university function. What can you tell us about the impact that this drop in enrollment has had on CMU? Well, over the, you know over the last decade, um, they've had to uh, close down some of their their, their residence halls. Um, fall enrollment, uh, you know, is the reason why Central Michigan shuttered four of the residence halls over the last uh, ten years. You know, just and it's not just the the campus itself, or excuse me, the university that it's impacted, but also the the campus community. You know, there are a lot of businesses that you know d- depend on. On student, uh, you know, patrons, uh, and so when they when there aren't students there, or at least aren't as many student students there as there were before, you know, businesses around there suffer uh, somewhat. You know, we, we did some really great reporting uh, over the last year. Um, there, we did a really long form piece last year, in, in fact, where we kind of highlighted one of their one one of the bars that used to be well, and it still is a, a hangout for students there, the Bird Bar and Grill, uh, where, where they talked about how lines have gotten quite a bit shorter since. Uh, the last 10 years when, when numbers have gone down signif- significantly. Is, is there any idea what might be behind this decline? Is it a problem with recruiting, a lack of freshmen, or is it something else? Well, the, the decline, uh, and this isn't just you know exclusive to CMU, this is something that a lot of, a lot of state universities in Michigan are, are feeling, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, but some of it is partly you know, a pandemic f- uh, phenomenon. Uh, but it's also, it really, it's mostly a product of uh, a shrinking number of 18 and 22-year-olds who are, are in the state and just a slow decline in the percentage of, of high school graduates who are choosing to enroll in, in college. So they've got less, uh, you know, you know basically less students that are interested in going to college, period. So there's less for them to attract specifically to CMU. And, and finally, what's the strategy going forward? You spoke to some university officials. Are they hopeful they can reverse this trend? And if so, how do they plan on doing that? Yeah, they're very hopeful, actually. The, as I mentioned, the, 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 the rate of decline has slowed down pretty significantly, uh, at least compared to three years ago. Um, so their prediction to me, and I'm, I'll be very interested to see this next year, but their prediction is that it will actually turn around and they, they might add some students next year. So we'll, we'll see how that, that pans out. They, they've... They're, they're, you know, betting on a couple of things here, you know, uh, uh, a lot of marketing, you know, they want to reach uh, an audience that uh, might be interested in coming there um, and finding students who might click with that, with, you know, with their specific uh, culture there at, at CMU. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just hope, th- hope that they uh, <laughs> enroll for fall of 2024 and, and help those numbers go up. And, and they also rely a lot on uh, their alumni, you know, their, the CMU Alumni are, are a proud bunch. Um, I, I, you know, I cover this region and I hear you know fire up chips a lot uh, whenever someone's trying to uh, you know express their school spirit and school pride at, at CMU. So they're 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 hoping that that, that also helps uh, reverse this wave, uh, this trend, and and kind of get them going back in the opposite direction so that they can look a lot more like the CMU that we are more familiar with, or at least we're we're more familiar with uh, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago as opposed to 50 years ago. Justin Engel is an award-winning reporter with MLive based in Saginaw. You can read his work, of course, at our website, MLive.com. Thanks, Justin. Thank you, Patrick.
Speaking of Central Michigan University, the football team heads to Mobile, Alabama this weekend to take on the South Alabama Jaguars. Kickoff at 5 p.m. Saturday, streaming on ESPN+. The Spartans are back in action this weekend as well. A home game against Maryland kickoff at 3.30 p.m. on NBC. Michigan State will try and turn things around after a blowout loss in their home opener against Michael Penix and the Washington Huskies. I think I'm about done as far as revisiting this stuff. I, I have I have about not, nothing left to say about this past week. I'm, I'm about done with the season. Can we call it? I mean, th- there is a chance, right, that like this was a really poor matchup and they do a little bit better. Like I'm trying not to be like a total prisoner of the moment here. That was an excerpt from MLive's Spartan Confidential podcast. Subscribe to stay up to date on all the latest Michigan State Athletics news, including the university's plans to fire head coach Mel Tucker. Meanwhile, in Ann Arbor, Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh will be back on the sidelines after his three-game suspension, self-imposed by the university. It's a whole can of worms, but MLive's Wolverine Confidential podcast can help break it down. This week on the pod, the guys chat with a Rutgers beat writer as the Wolverines get ready for their first conference game of the season against the Scarlet Knights. That's a noon kickoff on Saturday. You can watch on the Big Ten Network. The Western Michigan Broncos are 2-1 on the season. They'll take on Toledo in Kalamazoo Saturday at 1.30 p.m. That's streaming on ESPN+, Plus, where you can also watch the Eagles of Eastern Michigan play Jacksonville State in Jacksonville, Alabama at 5 p.m. And after a flying start to the season with a win against the reigning Super Bowl champs, the Detroit Lions are now 1-1 after a heartbreaking overtime loss to the Seattle Seahawks. Check out the latest episode of the Dungeon of Doom podcast to hear Kyle Mikey and Ben Raven's takeaways from that game and their thoughts on the Atlanta Falcons' upcoming visit to Ford Field on Sunday. That game kicks off at 1 p.m. on Fox. As always, you can read more about all the stories from this episode at our website, mlive.com. And that's all for this week. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.